Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Uh, joining me on the phone, as always, it is uh, co-host Alan Niven. Uh, bonjour, Alain. How are you? Bonjour. Um, I'm pretty good, all things considered. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're all alive, which, you know, is never a bad thing. You know. Um, yeah, and the cabin fever is, is manageable. So... Uh, all things good. Another day. Another day. So let, let us talk about uh, the band Raven. They have a new album coming out called Metal City. And I sat down with a longtime member, John Gallagher. We spoke about them. Uh, the band actually formed in 1974, give or take. Uh, were you ever a, a fan of Raven? And, and do you know why they didn't get to sort of that next level? I mean, they... They they went on this tour with Metallica back in the day. We all know Metallica now plays stadiums. Raven doesn't, and that's not to be disparaging. But where where do you sort of fit in in in, in the fandom of Raven? Well, I you know I I don't know if if I'd call myself a a devout fan, um, but it's interesting that you say you know Metallica got somewhere and Raven didn't. And the immediate thing that popped into my mind was Metallica had a tremendous asset in their management. Um, Cliff and Peter, Bernstein and Mensch, Q Prime, who, from my perspective, I always thought them the gold standard of management. I wouldn't say that they were brilliant at A&R, but in terms of organization and in terms of being able to get a record company to do what it should do, those two were masters at it. And I've never had anything but uh, respect for those two. And one of these days, I'll tell you a story about them that will blow your mind. Oh, I can't wait. And uh, speaking of respect, uh, I just did this interview with with John. And normally when we do interviews, it takes two, three weeks before they get up because I have all these other interviews stacked up and waiting to go. But... I got such a, an amount of respect for him on this one because he was just so well thought out, so well spoken, and just a nice guy that I figured, okay, let's get this one. Let's rush this one to the presses. So without further ado, uh, speaking of Metal City and all kinds of stuff, here is uh, the one and only John Gallagher from the band Raven. We are speaking with uh, the legendary Raven frontman John Gallagher. The new album is Metal City, coming out in September. And as we say in Montreal, le bonjour, John. How are you? Bonjour, Mitch. I'm doing great. Doing great. Getting very busy here. Lots of uh, stuff preparing for this release, which is awesome. Yes. So, so let us talk about this release because, you know, the band forms back in the mid-70s. You've put out a whole bunch of albums since then. We, of course, know about the infamous Metallica tour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you come to making a new release and, and you have the new drummer along, do you look back to the classic albums and the, and the classic sound and say, OK, we're Raven, we got to make Raven music? Or do you look at it, you know, 50 years, almost 50 years into the career and say, hey, you know what? We can do whatever we want. We're, we're, you know, we've been in this long enough. So when fans put this on, are they getting sort of a classic Raven album or are they getting some kind of new, um, you know, artistic statement? Well, they're kind of getting both because we do do what we like and what we like is Raven music. So <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. Uh, this album's kind of got its foot in two camps. It's 
they, it's like the attitude and energy of like something like wiped out from 1982, dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century with an absolute kick-ass production and sound and attitude. So we've taken a lot of our roots, as it were, and most of this is kind of unconscious. We just wrote an awful lot of songs and they all seem to be going in the right direction. And we picked 10 of them. You know, we were fooling around with a few more and these 10 just seemed to hang together. And we thought we want to do an album that's 10 songs. So again, the audience can get their heads around it and get their hands around it without listening to, you know, someone's artistic statement with 48 tracks. It's like, no, we'll, we'll keep it to 10. And it makes sense. And it's really just, we just raised the bar on every album we've done the last couple of times, big time. And this is like, we kicked it over the wall, kicked it over the house almost with the the writing, the performances, and of course the addition of having Mike Heller in on drums. It's just taken everything really to a new level. A great new level. Uh, let me just quickly talk about making new music because you are Raven. You have been around for all these years. You can go out and do the the, the tours and put out the name on the marquee and, and people are going to show up. They're going to go, oh, yeah, it's the classic band. I'm going to be there. Why bother with the the exercise of making new music? Is it just to stay creative? Is it because you have something still left to say? Why not just say, hey, listen, we're going to go play Wiped Out in full, do an album tour, the heck with you. Why bother with new music? Uh, because we're not a jukebox. We are musicians. We are creative. We've constantly, we constantly write. I mean, for this album alone, there was 35, 40 songs. And there's great songs still in there that will either come out on the next one or come out eventually. But in the meantime, we've still been writing. We wrote as a band at Mike's Place in LA back earlier last year and wrote five or six songs and individually, you know, we just put ideas down. So, you know, when you're creative and, you know, whatever, you know, you've heard people say that, you know, they don't really write. It's just, they pick up something like a transmitter. And when those moments happen, you just keep going and keep putting it down because, you know, it's like voodoo. <laughs> you, you want to make sure you, you capture any inspiration that's floating around. So we really enjoy the process of looking at a blank page or a blank hard drive these days or blank tape and then creating something. And, you know, that it's almost as, almost as thrilling as getting out on stage and playing this stuff. I mean, you know, I've just got test copies right now of the album and I'm like a little kid. It's like incredible to have it in my hand and it didn't exist before and now it does. And that, yeah, and that, and I, I feel we've got a, a, a reputation and an obligation to continue to do this as long as humanly possible, because who the hell else is doing it? This album's a real throw down the gauntlet statement, because there's a lot of bands of our age and from our era who are putting out OK records. And this is not an OK record. This is a freaking great record. That's what I like to hear. Um, just real quick, when when we you, you talked about, of course, wiped out, and and before that there was rock until you drop on neat records. Uh, when we look back in the history of of rock and metal, you know, on the American side, on the Canadian side, we talk about Megaforce and how they developed, you know, Metallica and Ace Frehley and Anthrax and all these other bands. How important though was neat record 
for a band like Raven and, and overall just in, in the whole metal community? Well, it's all a fluke. It really is because uh, we, the hometown is where I am right now at the moment, actually. It's Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England. And that may as well be on Mars compared to where the record business was back in the early 80s. It was in London. And that was it. And anyone from London back then, anywhere north of Watford Gap, which is maybe 30 miles outside of London, was like, you know, Braveheart territory. <laughs> they were not interested. They had no concept whatsoever. And they weren't going to check out any bands from the northeast of England. But it just happened that there was this small demo label called Neat, who had success with one single from a local band called the Tigers of Pantang. And it did well. And their manager saw one of our shows and says, hey, how would you like to do a single? And because that single of the Tigers was reviewed very well in one of the national music papers, Sounds, ours did too. And a few other bands followed. And all of a sudden there was a northeast version of the new wave of British heavy metal. And... You know, it it was very organic and it just came out of nowhere that all these bands had been out there playing the music they loved and for that reason and that reason alone. And all of a sudden you, you had basically a movement of sorts, you know. So the records, it was instrumental in us getting known. Uh, it was kind of doing a deal with the devil because, you know, we got paid maybe you know, $24.13, a couple of mints and a shirt button, you know. But uh, we, we, it was uh, a necessary first step by absolutely. And because of that, we got to play in Europe and we got to play in America. And, and of course, Jess Cox with Tigers of Pantang Bank back then, uh, giving them that, that punk vibe, I guess. Um, let's quickly talk about the the formation of the band you started in the mid 70s and you work your way through the clubs and through different incarnations through the 70s the first record comes out in 81 what was going on in those formative years where the band couldn't get to that next level and couldn't get a record deal and couldn't get signed um was it just hey we're just sort of developing and this is what it takes or was there a series of frustrations where you just went, come on, why is nobody giving us the attention? Well, to be honest, it was a different world back then. You know, it was a, a record deal. I mean, we didn't know any bands that had a record deal at all until right when that happened. We were a, a young local band. We formed in 1974 before we could even play. Our first show was in 1975. We played originals and covers. We played the pubs. And then we got into the working men's club circuit where, you know, you'd play 45 minutes of crazy and then they'd, it would be silent and they'd play bingo. And then you'd come back on and do another 45 minutes of crazy. And we learned, we cut our teeth. We learned our, you know, paid our dues playing these places. So we had our live thing together and were developing our writing chops and all that. And the band was a four piece all the way up until the end of 79. When one of our founder members, Paul Bowden left, we got another guy in, it didn't work. And we decided to go as a three piece. And as soon as we decided to go as a three piece, like everything started happening. So that very strange, but everything started happening. 
Uh, it was a catalyst for writing. Uh, it was a catalyst for musical development for all three of us. And we were off and running. And, but, you know, all these things literally started happening at once. You started seeing, hey, here's these young bands and they're getting noticed in the paper. It's not rarefied air of, you know, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow or Yes or Genesis or whoever, you know, who, yeah, we loved all the music that was out there. We loved all the bands and we took little parts from all of them to make our own style. But it was uh, like looking at the gods, the concept of uh, even going out and, well, you know, punk style, do it yourself. And I was saying, really? Never even entered our heads. So all these things developed and, you know, the climate just, everything just came together at the, at the right time. Talk to me a little bit about the, the development of the, of the musical style. You know, you're, you're considered by some to be sort of the forefathers of, of thrash metal or certainly a more aggressive metal. You're, you're coming out of, of the 60s and 70s with the Peace and Love movement and, and the Beatles and Rolling Stones that are just doing sort of very basic rock and roll was was the sound something that you just sort of came up with or was it was it influenced by what was doing going on with Black Sabbath and and, and Led Zeppelin w where did you decide hey we're going to go heavy and not just sort of strum along and talk about peace and love and flowers well we liked heavy but we liked songs and we liked melodies so when we were young kids we used to put on top of the pops which was the once a week show in England and they'd play you know, the top of the pops. And at the time, it was Mark Bolan, T-Rex, and Slade. Slade was the band that really got us into this, Slade and Status Quo, because it, they were great songs, but they, they had a heavy edge. And the first band we ever saw was Slade, and the opening act was the sensational Alex Harvey band. So between the two of them, it's like it was the end of the world. You know, that, that was like the greatest... And it still is one of the greatest gigs we ever saw. And we'd go to see these bands. And in Newcastle, there was two halls. One we couldn't get into until a little later because it was 18 and above. But the City Hall held 2,000 people. And every great band that ever existed played there. So you could see what was going on. You weren't in an arena with binoculars trying to figure stuff out. So that was our education, seeing all these bands and watching the opening bands and saying, well, why is this band going down badly? Or why are they going down good? What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? And taking that all in. And musically, we just gravitated to the faster stuff and the more aggressive stuff. So if we were playing a Deep Purple cover, we'd be playing Highway Star, you know? And if we were playing... The status quo stuff, it wouldn't be any of the ballad stuff. It'd be the up-tempo stuff like Roll Over, Lay Down or stuff like that. Or You know, we, we'd just pick the, the, the faster stuff and we'd rev them up a bit. And then the stuff we were writing was coming from that. You know, Montrose, we'd be playing Space Station Number 5 and, you know, crazy stuff like that. By the way, it's amazing that status quo has been around almost 60 years and yet in North America, they can't get arrested. It, it, it's just a mar remarkable, the career they've had in the, in the UK. Um, real quick, in terms of, of playing this faster music at this age, and, and we'll talk about the musicality and stuff, because I'm counting, perhaps wrongly, that the band has had 12 drummers. And 
to play at that inc- incredible speed's got to be real rough on the back and on the shoulders. Uh, Twelve. I, I, 12 drummers you uh, must be counting some that I don't know well I'm, uh, well, I'm counting I'm counting the touring substitutes as well I'm counting uh, everybody that that's picked up a stick even oh, if it was for no, 10 that minutes would, that would be that would be a tough one let's see so we started with Paul Sheriff who couldn't play. correct and then we had Dave Allen who could play but only played one show right and then we had Mike Kenworthy yes and then we had Sean Taylor yes so we're, we're at five we, okay then we had Rob Hunter correct then we had Joe Hasselvander. Correct. Then we had, on one show, three Greek guys filled in on one show when <laughs> Joe couldn't turn up. <laughs> that is correct. Mano, Spiros, and, then, and Nick. And then we had, jeez, uh, what do we have? Fabio. Had, uh, Fabio Alessandri. We had Fabio. We had the guy from Chicago, and we had the guy from Kill Ritual. Uh, Jimmy Mess, David Chadwick, Mike Heller. See, you've got them. See, now, now we're up to 13. You added one that I didn't have. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you, you did your homework. I'm impressed. I, I did my homework. But, you, you know, jokes aside, playing this music when you're 20 is fine. But as you get to be 40 and 50, just walking the dog hurts the knees and the shoulders. And, and, I can, and it's kind of funny that you've had all these drummers because that's got to be the most sort of demanding position in the band. But, uh, but, but realistically, though, it, 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 has it gotten harder to do this kind of music at a high level. And when you make a new album, do you sort of say, maybe we should sort of slow it down a bit so that when we have to perform these songs, it's not, you know, jokes aside, is the physicality something you think about moving forward? Well, it was beginning to be a problem with Joe because he didn't like to play the faster stuff and he he didn't want to be out on the road and, you know, these things. Right now, now we've got Mike, Mike's a younger guy from a different generation, brings in different influences and can play all night and not even break a sweat hardly. So anything we can throw at him, he'll throw back at us 100 beats per minute faster. And that's that's awesome. That's great because that's where we want to be. I mean, we are older guys, but we're fit. And honestly, it hasn't been an issue. Mark's had terrible health problems and can still go out there and kick ass better than 99% of the people out there. I mean, he nearly lost his legs, nearly lost his life in 2001. And it took him like four years to basically be able to walk again and to, to get over that. So, you know, his whole thing is, that, well, if I can get over that, I can do anything. <laughs> so, so he does. <laughs> Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the fastest show on earth. Obviously, the uh, the Kill 'Em All for One tour back of '83 and it gets into '84. Um, talk to me about that coming together because, from what I understand, it's John Zazula at Megaforce that says to you guys, "Hey, we've got this young up and coming band. You should give them a shot." Uh, and first of all, is that true? Is that sort of how it happened? John sort of said, "Hey, you got to get these guys." And then when you get them and you see them. Uh, what were some of your first impressions? Well, it was funnier than that because it was, John had said, I've got the biggest band in San Francisco to open for you guys. And we were looking at each other going, why would Y&T want to open for us? <laughs> and they're like, no. We're like, Journey? No, it's Metallica. And we're like, who? And in the mail came a, the demo tape, the No Life to Leather thing. And I had to check and see if it was on the right speed because it sounded like Motorhead at 78 on a record player. 
And I thought, oh, well, these guys sound, you know, crazy. This will be fun. And, you know, they were young kids. They were, you know, Cliff was like a, an old soul on young shoulders. But, uh, you know, James Lars and Kirk were basically young guys, you know. I mean, we weren't that much older, but we were because we'd been around the block a few times. So it was great. And they came out and they did they did their thing. And you could tell... You could tell it was going to go somewhere, but you couldn't tell it was going to take over the earth the way it did. And again, if they'd been playing the right Lightning album, maybe I would have saw a bit more of that. But to me, the first album is great. It's it's very punky. You know what I mean? It's it's very in your face, and it doesn't have the the breadth and doesn't have the the songwriting chops that started to come out as they went on. You know. But oh, yeah. uh, it was incredible. You got like 17 people crammed into a six-birth Winnebago for like eight weeks. It was uh, very improbable, put it that way, but somehow it all worked. It, it, it did all work. Now, obviously, you know, the, the, the fans were very rabid for both bands. As you're touring, though, do, do you start sensing a, a change in the attitude where fans are gravitating to one band or more? Do, do you start at some point, do you say... Oh, we're going to crush these rookies. Or do you say, uh-oh, we're in trouble. we got to pick up our game. Was there a natural competition between the two? Or was it just, hey, it's 17 guys in a van, party time, yay, everybody. H- how was it? Well, this may sound incredibly arrogant, but we've never, ever said, oh, my God, we're going to get crushed by these rookies. <laughs> we've always had a, 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 a very good sense of knowing that we are a really good live band. Uh, and also that the competition thing is you've, you've got to use it as healthy competition. I mean, I've seen people who have uh, literally sabotaged their opening acts in order to preserve some sort of hierarchy. And that's pathetic. We would, it's happened to us, you know, it's happened to us many times where, Oh, the power all went off. Sorry. That's the end of your show. We would never do that. Well, it's just uh, funny you mentioned that because, uh, you know, I, I've interviewed the Rat Guys, for example, and one of them was talking to me about how they had Bon Jovi open for them and they they noticed that everybody was there for Bon Jovi and then the other time they had Poison there. And then, of course, they decided to start doing those shenanigans of shutting down the, the lights, uh, cutting the stage thing down to, you know, almost you, the, the guys couldn't move on stage. And it was just like, really? Like, can't you, instead of, like, up your game rather than downgrade their game? Yeah, like it's, that, it's, that's, that's absolutely right. And it, it's it's happened to us. The first show we ever played in America, Riot came to the stage box and they were unplugging all the chords and putting the bass guitar on the vocal track and the vocal track on the kick drum and all this stuff. And it didn't work because we went and did our thing. And it doesn't matter where we are on the bill, we'll give 110% of the best Raven performance you'll ever see. We don't concern ourselves with these things, but we've never been in a position of headlining a show and thinking that, oh, we got our asses kicked. We we would, there's a, a level of professionalism and performance that we will bleed before we walk off stage with no reaction. That's never going to happen even if it's a reaction of people hating our guts. <laughs> I mean, oh. we played in front of punks. We played in front of Slayer's audiences. We, we did a whole tour with Wasp and Slayer, and we were first on. 
we had a gap in one of the songs overload and we would stop, throw down the guitars, climb over the barrier and stand and go, okay, who's first? I'll take the whole lot of you on and make outrageous statements like that. And these 14-year-old specky kids who'd been throwing batteries at us paused and went, uh-oh, these guys are nuts. Back off. Well, at least they're not throwing piss get bottles. get a reaction. Get Sorry? It. At least they're not throwing piss bottles like they do in the UK, so batteries are Yeah, are, are the bad. festival thing with that was always <laughs> a lot of fun. I've uh, <laughs> been lucky to avoid any of that. That's good. Yeah, you've been lucky. Uh, so how important, by the way, is the live performance to the band? Because Raven and I think even Metallica are bands that thrive on the live performance. Yes, the albums are great and there's some memorable moments, but I think you, when you look back and you ask a fan, they go, oh, I saw them at this show and whatever, and they were brilliant. Uh, how important is it? And, and then we'll move into the COVID thing and how damaging that is to what you do. It's 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 everything. It's what it's all about. I mean, you know, we get together and we plug in and it, there's like a button in your head. You're instantly like 14 or 15 year old. And we we just go, go, go. And for us, playing live is wonderful because we're not as uh, regimented and structured as most bands. It's a three-piece. We are able to improvise, and we do improvise. We change the setup. We'll stop. We'll put different parts in. We'll start playing. We, we always usually have one song at the end of the set where we'll just stretch it out and play parts of covers, tunes, or just start jamming or, you know, the solos are never the same, whether it's the solo spots or the solos or fills within the songs. They're never really the same. We play them different every night. That keeps us entertained. And I think it keeps the audience entertained too. The, the whole concept of like, you know, you're going to play this song and you're going to play the same solo you did on the record every night. Otherwise, there's a problem. That's like working nine to five in an office. I want nothing to do with that whatsoever yeah. you mean you don't run tape my god a live What's band that? that i said i said my god you don't run tape a live band that's no, actually live absolutely do not <laughs> run tape that's that's a persona non grata in our world and and one of the worst things played, going on to music with bands where he's either had to do that or that was the way they wanted to do it and to me it's it's ludicrous i've seen bands that uh, for the sake of argument, we'll call them Sabaton, who had like two laptops running. And I, I could hear what was on tape and what the band was doing. I think, why are you doing this? It's ridiculous. You're more than capable of doing what you do without it. So why is it there? It's like a crutch. It's like, oh, we've got 400 people singing with us. It's like, that's yeah. what the audience is for? Get them to sing? Well, you know, it's it's funny because uh, I interviewed Jeff Tate of Queensryche years and years ago, and I've interviewed him 20 times since, but I said to him, you know, we know that you're using tapes and stuff. Why? And he says, well, our albums are so complicated that we can't do it live. And my brain went, well, then why don't you make your albums less complicated? <laughs> you know? well, why don't you do, I mean, let's take a classic, classic band, Queen. They never used tapes until... 1982, they brought a, a fifth guy on the road with them who played keyboards and occasional guitar, Spike Edney. Before that, the only thing that was on tape was the middle part of Bohemian Rhapsody. And and they only did that near the end, but, you know, round about maybe 82 or something, because the other times they'd put it in a medley and not play the middle part. 
And there's a band that had more overdubs than just about any band you could ever mention. And it was great live because they got to the essence of the song, but keeping all all the parts you wanted to hear. And that's and Led Zeppelin had zillions of overdubs on some songs and just, you know, made it work. So to me, it's a, you know, treat live as live, treat studio as studio. And, you know, it's refreshing to to maybe get a slightly different take on what's going on. Reproducing what you do in the, you know, live from what you've done in the studio. I prefer to do it the other way around. I want to reproduce in the studio what we do live. I want to get that energy. See, that's smart. That's very smart. And, And by the way, live should have errors you, you know you should be playing ahead of the beat you should have feedback there's because that's what live is about it's not about perfection perfection is for you know uh, beyonce when you're going to see raven or metallica or def leppard you you want some wards because it says hey we're a rock band anyway that's that's you my wanna see, yeah you want to see people like stretching and trying and you know maybe they'll fall on their ass but that's okay it's it's you know it's how you get up it's not the fact that you make an error it's how you get out of it yeah. And, you know, we've had great shows where there's been technical issues and with three piece, there's very little, you know, room for error. There's no safety nets and they could be the greatest shows ever because somehow you, you pull something out of thin air to make it work. You know, we had a show in Sweden where all the power went out except the PA. So I got to be Freddie Mercury for five minutes while they fix everything. And it was awesome. It <laughs> <Doing> great. <laughs> Well, you know, even even that album that you have uh, live in Alborg, where you, you know you, you you sort of didn't realize that somebody was going to tape it, and then and you put out the the um, the album. Um, it's not perfect, but it's perfect if you know what I mean. You know, there's, oh, there's, yeah. well, there's, that's it, we had no idea it was being recorded. So even though these days you kind of think everything's being recorded anyway with phones and YouTube and all that nonsense. But if you were recording for a live album, there would be that little, ooh, ooh, the red light's on, I've got to behave myself. There was absolutely none of that. And there was no fixing done. What you hear is what you get. And it's it's those imperfections and errors that make it. It, it makes it alive and breathing, and it's like a danger thing where you don't know what's going to happen next. And that's the magic of live music. It is. And and my co-host on the show is Alan Niven, who who managed Guns N' Roses and, and Great White. And he always says, and, and fans have heard it a million times, that there is a, per, a perfection in the imperfection. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Alan would know that 100%. I mean, that's what made Guns N' Roses such a great band. There was that edge of danger of it all falling apart at any moment, but it didn't and it was you know just exciting absolutely well it did on some occasions uh i was at the montreal riot with metallica when you introduce other (laughs) substances into the mix i think (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh that that uh when was that 91 or 92 at the olympic stadium i was there when when james caught fire and axel walked off the stage and then there was a riot oh what yeah. a great moment in my life that was. Uh, anyway, that, uh, that kind of dangerous we don't need. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we we don't need that. And and uh, the funny thing is, I had gone with my buddy Jay, and he had just 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 bought a Honda Civic, and he parked it right outside the the Olympic Stadium. And I looked at him and I said, Jay, we got to get out of here because your new car is small and flippable. 
And so we yep. ran and we got in that car. And to this day, he goes, yeah, thank me because uh, I, I would have lost my car because everything was overturned after while, afterwards. Anyway, uh, oh, let's, let's remind the folks that uh, Metal City is out in uh, September. And uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup, John. An absolute, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, man. And uh, thanks to everyone out there. And we hope to see you on the road next year. Oh, God, yes, please. Uh, and hopefully in Canada. Yes, indeed. Thank you, sir. Merci. We love playing for you guys. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Merci. Bonne journée. Have a good day. Goodbye. Bye-bye now.